Hello, in today's episode the topic of sexual violence does come up but we don't go into any detail whatsoever so just thought I'd let you know. Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Angel. Hello Catherine. Hi Justin. Catherine is wonderful author of this wonderful book tomorrow sex will be good again women in desire in the age of consent Catherine also wrote unmastered a book on desire most difficult to tell and daddy issues both of which are absolutely great Catherine's a pal of mine been really looking forward to this chat Catherine also very kindly says some nice things about my book so it's a big loving uh, and um, yeah so it's going to be it's going to be great, isn't it? That's right. We're, we're going to we're set, set out to have high kind of hopes for this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> even, even though, as you say during the book, conversations are kind of, you don't know how a conversation is going to go. Mm-hmm. We should frame sex more like a conversation where, how is it going to go? Rather than mm-hmm. you know, to be open to the, to the unfolding, unribboning of what might happen. Exactly. You write about sex so brilliantly. Um, and so... Uh, like with such like poetic precision um, uh, that I could read your books all day and I've learned so much from it and I loved it. So that's my review, hashtag review. (laughs) (laughs) That's very nice of you to say. (laughs) But let's start by talking about consent. So in my books, can we talk about consent, but also in my book with Meg John, um, Enjoy Sex, How, When and If You Want To. uh, I frame consent as like being the answer uh, really that we that to by aiming for consent we um that is the key to unlocking all of the difficulties not only around sexual violence but also around agency and freedom and how we tune into ourselves and our desires and how we navigate that with someone else um in tomorrow sex will be good again uh you say that consent the word consent isn't isn't enough and can't bear the weight that we put on it I think whether we, I think we have like, uh, and we are of the same mind. I think in the way that you write about consent. But could you unpack a bit where you where you come from around the word consent? Sure. So I think it's um, it's really important to say that you know consent is the absolute bare minimum for for me as far as sex is concerned. You know we should only ever have sex with people who want to have sex with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know broadly speaking, the whole kind of uh, direction of a lot of consent education, I really support and, you know, affirmative consent with the emphasis that it places on the importance of the other person's desire, you know, and and making sort of verbalizing that and um, being attuned to the other person's desire and, and their discomfort and their enthusiasm, all those things are hugely important for sex and pleasure. The thing that I'm trying to argue in the book is um, that some of the language around consent, so some of the way women in particular are addressed in terms of, you know, questions about coercive sex or kind of pushy, pushiness or assault as well, is that quite often the burden ends up getting placed on women as the ones who have to bear the responsibility for articulating um, their sexual desire and knowing that sexual desire in the first place. So part of what I'm kind of critiquing, I suppose, is some of the language that kind of comes in Mm. to those discussions of consent and how that emphasis, I think, ends up serving women really badly. Mm. But a a sort of related point is about, um, in a sense, is about the law. I mean, I think it's absolutely vital that we get the law right around consent and sexual assault. Um, But I think that, and this may be particularly true in the US, I think that there's a way in which a kind of legal language around consent, which is to do with the distinction, you know, between consent and non-consent, has kind of spread into um, the vocabulary around much wider things, all of which, you know, you talk about so brilliantly in your book to do with, you know, agency um, and whether people are given various options and choices in a sexual dynamic. And I think that while we have to get the legal questions right, we also really have to pay attention to what's kind of distinctively complicated about those questions, Mm. about, you know, who feels they have the right to sexual pleasure, whose desires are considered more important, Mm -hmm. who 
is allowed to experience agency or ambivalence to that matter around sex. So partly I'm kind of saying that a kind of legal framing around sex doesn't always work well. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's actually something I discussed with Elsie Whittington on a podcast, uh, our consent education podcast, that that kind of legalistic, narrow, binary notion of consent means that, first of all, certainly in sex education, young people then focus on, well, was it legal or not, which is kind of problematic mm-hmm. because we want to get people thinking about really how do we how do we do things ethically rather than legally. But it also, but when we say when when there's only an option of whether something is consensual or not, it, it cuts down on the opportunity for things to be more consensual. And I think if we have a non-legalistic framing of consent, things can always be more consensual. I think just even in our, even in how we negotiate, we did pretty well on negotiating the how we do this podcast. And I felt mm. like it was pretty consensual. But there's always more. There's always more that we can mm. do more, more questions, more tuning to, to what it is that we need and, you know, we'll have this ongoing consent throughout the conversation as, you know, by noticing how interested we are or whether we're looking at our watches and things. I think there's, mm-hmm. there's always more of it. Um, I think the, the, I guess the thing with the legalistic framing is that I think that it is this thing about oversimplifying a complex thing in order to send out the right message in inverted yeah. commas. I think there's a lot of that going on. But certainly that, I felt like that was coming out of the book really clearly and um i thought felt like that was kind of of coming out one of the things i've not read enough foucault to really understand but one of the things that really came out was like who is in who is in charge of those simplistic messages like who is it that um is defining these for us who is it who's Mm. who's telling us what's going on here um the stuff about the is it title Title nine. I've only ever seen it in yeah. Roman numerals. <laughs> yeah. uh, so just uh, was referred to that. All that, that that stuff was referred to in another book, which I kind of read at the same time as reading your book, uh, like um, called "Virtue Hoarding" by Catherine Liu. And oh, I don't know that. Uh, it's much. It's very, very polemical and 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 political. And it's um, it's basically a, a, a tirade against the professional managerial class. Uh, her reading of it was that stuff around affirmative consent and Obama's directives to universities came was basically kind of uh, a way of doing politics in a way that he completely abrogated by doing nothing around the financial crash. He was saying, well, I'm not going to do anything around this because capitalism has to succeed, but I am going to do something about this. And so I guess the, I think that we'll come on to talking about, you know, sexology, which I like to kind of moan about, but I guess like, is do you think that that thing about, do you get that sense of the, the, are certain, there's a certain like class of people who want to send like a key message about what it is that we should be doing to, I guess, to own the discourse in a way around consent, desire, agency. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier, actually, listening to you talking to Vanessa Feltz on BBC <laughs> Radio London about um, all this stuff to do with uh, everyone's invited and mm-hmm. these, you know, these terrible testimonies of mm. girls and young women experiencing, you know, relentless kind of harassment and kind of sexual bullying. Um, and when Vanessa Feltz was asking you about, you know, what are parents doing? What are schools doing? What are what are authority figures doing to send really clear messages about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? Mm. I thought it was really interesting the way you answered that because you said, you know, that model where somebody stands up in assembly or whatever and mm. kind of shows a PowerPoint, this is what's okay, this is what's not okay, this is the law. Um, that's not what people need. It's, no. or at the very least, it's not sufficient. You know, what people need is to uh, be able to, uh, explore things in their own language, in their own experience, amongst their peers, in a kind of safe environment where they can ask questions and where they can be vulnerable and talk mm. about things that they're worried about that that's happened to them, but also that maybe they have done. Mm. Um, and, and I thought that was just a really good example of how, you know, th- there is a way in which there does have to be some clear messaging, you know, consent is vital, uh, you know, sexual assault is a crime, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
some really clear messaging mm. for educational purposes. But if we leave it to those kind of top-down approaches, mm. um, we're doomed because mm. that makes things feel simpler than they are. It makes also people feel inhibited and frightened of putting a step wrong, you know, putting a foot wrong and getting into mm. trouble. And I think that um, it's really, it's really difficult. And I and I had difficulty thinking about this because, you know, I want. I want to tread this really delicate line where, um, you know, questions of consent and assault are so are so vital, and that and that dividing line does really need to be attended to mm. really carefully by the law and by people in positions of authority, even if sometimes those ways of wielding authority, as we know, can be hugely problematic. I mean, you know, the police and the law, mm-hmm. as we know are not to safe hands to trust complex social mm. dynamics and questions of inequality into. But, you know, education does have to sometimes speak in quite stark terms. Mm. But in addition to some of that, you know, clear kind of messaging, there just needs to be so much more, so mm. many more spaces where we can, you know, ask one another what, what is pleasure? What is good sex? What's bad sex? What What do you feel you were allowed? What you know? What messages did you learn about what you were entitled to as a young girl or as a boy? Um, and I find it, I find it, you know, just really painful to think of how much lack there is around that. I mm. think, and you'll know more about this than I do because mm. you know you're a sex educator and you you work mm. in schools. You work with young people. And I think it's just, it's very fraught, I think, because people are very nervous about talking to young people Mm. about things like pleasure, Mm. Um, which is a reason why I think, in fact, some of the consent language has come to sort of swamp the conversations about that Mm. because it's about very clear or, you know, not always, but, you know, Mm. ideally very clear distinctions. And because it, it allows us to kind of take recourse to this, this, uh, system outside of us that that plays a hugely powerful role in society which is the law and it means that we don't have to ask ourselves uncomfortable questions about how we teach young girls about pleasure i mm. think it is it is so damaging that young girls get such constant messaging about their lack of entitlement to pleasure mm. not least because you know they're at risk of sexual violence therefore it's risky for them to explore pleasure mm. you know that's such a theme for girls and young mm. women but i think that the fact that girls in particular are you know so much at risk of sexual violence doesn't mean that we cannot talk to them about pleasure because mm. that's part of the problem you know if if girls and women don't expect a world um or don't encounter a world in which their pleasure is really taken seriously in combination with the fact that young boys are taught that their desire trumps everything mm. we're never going to resolve this problem it is no. just such a powerful combination that is set up to enable abuse of girls and women so i think you know it's a really difficult area but it has to be confronted in concert with mm. these more you know direct kind of educational messages i actually think something similar is going on with pleasure narratives as well like pleasure discourse um i think that that's i think that that's been oversimplified and also commodified um you know as you Mm. talk about in the book actually um it's been diagnosed and pathologized (laughs) um to death but i think that there is like um certainly the kind of the unbridled sex positivity kind of uh, sex education that I don't belong to um, talks about what what defines pleasure um, that it is orgasms and uh, and um, but that it's orgasms but still part of the world of heteronormativity part of the world of penis and vagina sex and reproductive sex Um, and Mm -hmm. it's you know even when people talk about the orgasm gap you know there isn't a gap if if two people masturbate separately <laughs> there's no gap mm. as Kinsey found um many many years ago so but yeah it's I think that also this thing about the key message and the oversimplification I think that it I always think like who is it aimed at it's kind of aimed at young people it's aimed at 
daters as well. So it's like aimed at young people and young people on Tinder, young people on Grinder, and the message is always this is this is the kind of thing that you need to be thinking about. And it resolves the people saying those messages from thinking about what's going on in their you know charmed circle monogamous long-term relationships and I think there's this magical thinking around consent that you know I'm in a relationship so that I don't have to think about mm-hmm, this I don't mm-hmm. have to interrogate this for myself I don't have to think about how I learn consent what agency means to me mm-hmm. how I how I tune into my desires even if I'm able to tune into my desires and how I then do the difficult work of articulating it mm-hmm. I think there's a bit of anothering thing going on totally Um, Totally. And I think that, you know, so often in these conversations, it is, it does tend to be, you know, older people talking about these really worrying dynamics um, amongst young people. And, you know, is it to do with, uh, you know, the rise of pornography and, um, you know, how how come they aren't being taught these things in schools or, or whatever? And when I hear people taking that line of questioning, I just think, but do you think that we've got it all figured out? I mean, no one has, you know, like, women are not just women, you know, people are subject to sexual violence um, and forms of gendered violence the whole way through their lives from people of all different ages. It's not just a problem um, of, you know, youngsters who are constantly addicted to their, to their telephones. Mm. It's, you know, it's a much more collective problem. And I think sometimes the focus on school kids and on university students especially in the US is actually to the detriment of larger conversations about how this stuff is woven through the fabric of society and it is also really linked to questions of um, you know various forms of privilege and social inequality and I think it's you know obviously it's really important to to think about what's going on um, in schools and universities but it's not as if the rest of culture has this figured out it's it's so pervasive. Mm. Yeah, completely. I think a lot of it boils down to our sex education. You know, I think there is a real problem with, um, well, first of all, that sex education is just part of the culture and the culture says, culture tells us not to talk about it. Culture tells us that it's bad to Mm -hmm. talk about sex. And so, and sex education is kind of part of that. And it's all, you know, it's all very narrow and legalistic and to do with risk and harms. Mm. And that is just passed on. And it becomes so passed on that it, people feel like it's become common sense. Like people, it's, uh, you know, people feel like it's the, the, the hegemonic view of sex is that we don't talk about it um, or that it's just too embarrassing, um, which is not to say that we should all be talking about it all the time either, to quote, to, to reference uh, uh, your book and what, uh, what Foucault said about it too. But um, where was I going with that? Um but yeah, I do think that it is, you know, I think that it would be better for all of us, to be honest, about how little our sex education has equipped us to do this, how mm. tricky we find the conversations, but also set for us all to say, I'm still figuring this out. And, mm. you know, even have someone who, you know, I this is my job to do things like this. I am a sex educator. I'm still figuring things out. That doesn't mean to say that I'm mm. bumbling around and having non-consensual sex all the time, which is certainly not the case, but it's just for me to suggest that I have all this, that I have sex and relationships mm. figured out is just silly. And I think the more you understand, the, um, the more you interrogate it, the more you realize that we'll never always work it out, but also that's okay within the confines of, doing as much as doing as much as possible to not harm others and to ensure Mm -hmm. that people around us are having pleasurable time as possible I guess yeah and I think that's what's really nice about your book is that you know it gets very fine-grained you get into that detail of what is it like to have a conversation where you're negotiating the fact that you might have conflicting desires you know Mm -hmm. whether it's about sex or pizza or or Mm -hmm. whatever it is um that you know actually what we what we don't learn, I think, is how just to do that in conversation, mm. just to to learn to you know be attuned to um, to that potential difference mm. and to you know the other person's needs or discomforts. And I re- I really love the way you approach this in your book because 
you relate it to other kind of questions about, you know, autonomy, for instance, is this a setup that, that is enhancing the other person's autonomy or are you reducing their capacities for exploration or expressions of uncertainty or ambivalence? You know, are you speaking and acting in such a way that gives people, that gives the other person the option to leave or to say no, or to say, I'm not sure, or to say, not now, but maybe later, you know? And I think that, you know, again, that's why some of the way these conversations go, where it's like, oh, we need to get sex ed right. Of course we need mm. to get sex ed right. It's absolutely vital. But how are we approaching one another in society more generally? You know, how are we cultivating a culture of, of interest and curiosity in the other's desire, where that person's desire isn't always just an obstacle mm. to our desire or or a kind of open door where we can do what we want? Mm. You know, those it's so linked to other kind of stances that we take towards human interaction. Mm. And I think that's what I really liked about your book that, yeah, you know, you are talking about it partly in terms of consent, but you're not, um, you're not just mm. narrowing it down to this really contractual mm. closed notion of consent. You're, to, you're, you know, it's open-ended and I think that's really difficult and it's really, it's really vital. Well, this is what I love about your book. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, oh, um, honey. <laughs> uh, and I did definitely, I, def I definitely, when I was writing it, thinking about, um, you know, what Catherine Angel say about this, that the, that consent has got to be able to allow for our ambivalences, that even if we do kind of have a, even if we do have some desires that might feel quite fixed, they, they might we, we might suddenly become quite ambivalent about them or we might we might be ambivalent about someone else's it's got to allow for for that and i think you know more time and more slowness is is a crucial part of it you know one of the bits of advice i give to young people who are thinking about having sex for the first time is like pick one or two things and see how that goes for a bit and don't try and do lots of things and obviously to see sex as being you know many many different kinds of uh, mm -hmm. things that we might do well, the thing I really loved about uh, this is a theme that, that comes out really strongly throughout your book is um, that uh, strength and vulnerability aren't a zero-sum game. Like you can be both, and in order to in in order to I guess to to tune into our desires, but then to navigate those with someone else means that we have to be vulnerable in that way the, the the way that you were talking just now about the about how you know, society has kind of set us up to to try to get things from people mm. in that kind of transactional way takes us away from what it is to be human which is to to see how things might evolve with someone how they might slowly unfold um which is something I really got from you, but it's not really a question, but could you say a bit more about where you got to with that? Because I found mm. that so lovely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so, it's so interesting what, what you're saying about the book and what your take on it is. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned kind of ambivalence and earlier you mentioned like sex positivity and all that mm. stuff. I think for me, it's so important that we don't um, veer from one unsatisfactory situation, which mm. is, that you know um sexuality has been repressed in women and that it's forbidden and it's shamed you know moving from that to it's kind of opposite which is like yeah sex is great and we have to have this relentlessly positive affect around sex mm -hmm. because that's just not realistic it's just a lie you know mm -hmm. sex is frightening for a lot of people it's associated with pain and fear um and lots of people are walking around the world carrying lots of trauma around sex mm -hmm. with them. So it's just, it's just unrealistic to talk in that way about sex. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of critiquing in some of the language around consent is a pressure placed on women to be good, uh, you know, modern women mm -hmm. and be totally positive about sex and kind of gung-ho and confident, mm -hmm. but also that that's part of being a good feminist, right? In a, in a sort of empowerment feminism, a very individualistic feminism where it's about your own kind of individual advancement. You have to embody this type, which, is, um, which isn't fearful, it isn't scared, it isn't wounded, it isn't uncertain. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, 
a self-respecting, confident woman just knows what she wants and gets on with it. And that to me is, you know, just as harmful as saying to women, you can't have sexual desire because no one is just one thing. You don't just have one feeling around sex or one stance towards it. You have many feelings over the course of one sexual experience, over the course of a day of a year of a life. Mm -hmm. So I really want us, you know, I really want our kind of ethical thinking about sex to start from what things are really like rather than an idealized fantasy that actually ends up being used against women. Because, you know, if, if the kind of cultural sort of script is that women have to be confident and clear about their desire in order to avoid the possibility of sexual violence, then it's very convenient because if sexual violence does occur, you can turn around and say, Oh, well, you just weren't clear enough. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's it's so important to me to to allow um not just women to allow everybody to have mm. um changing feelings around sex but also to feel vulnerable around sex because mm. sex is vulnerable like mm. what what are we all kidding ourselves about of course it's vulnerable it's frightening you're exposed you're you know mostly you're naked you're mm. you, you you want somebody to to want you back you you know and that I think is so important in relation to men as well, that we don't mm. just endorse this idea that men go into sex with, with this kind of impenetrable fearlessness. I think mm. that they very much don't, which is why it's really important that we kind of um, democratize the idea of vulnerability and say, you mm. know, vulnerability and openness are what make pleasure possible. They also make they're also what make it possible for us to be wounded. But mm. that doesn't mean that anybody has the right to wound you. No. So, you know, it's about trying to kind of find what's rich in that kind of shared vulnerability while also making it really clear that we should never exploit someone else's vulnerability. No. no that's really, that's, that's really, I mean, this book is so great. So, you know, obviously everyone get the book. <laughs> what you say about men in it is so interesting as well, because this kind of pitting men as like the default sex in heterosexuality and that the men's desire is default. And that means certain things is also extremely bad for men. Um, it yeah. reminded me of, you know, I used to work with young men in uh, kind of an advice setting within a sexual health clinic. And one young man said to me, um, a very kind of, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, experienced young man <laughs> said, you know, I've, uh, I won't use his words, but, you know, he told me that he'd had sex with many, many women, probably hundreds of young women. And he was like 23 and he'd been having sex since he was 13 or 14. And he'd never once really enjoyed it. Like he always got a hard mm -hmm. on and, you know, ejaculated, but he just confided in me that he just never once really felt mm -hmm. it. It's like, Gosh, you know, it was wonderful that he felt he could tell me that, mm. for one. Um, I doubt he's had that many conversations with anyone else about this mm. before or since. But it really does a number on men, this kind of, this, this un invulnerability as well as harming people isn't even really something if men were allowed to step back and to, to tune into some of this stuff for themselves. Mm. It's not even something I think they would necessarily choose. Um, and yeah, because it's so it goes so much against what what we all tell ourselves about about mm. gender and sex, and that's you know it's it's such a kind of poignant poignant moment I think because mm. yeah I think that for men and women alike we are not we are not enabling sex that is joyful. <laughs> You know, it, it feels like any, any sort of joy and, you know, deep kind of pleasure and feelings of abandon and exploration that anybody experiences in sex is an incredible triumph against the odds <laughs> <laughs> for men and for women, you know. And I think this kind of um, what what's kind of interesting to me is how sometimes in the history of, of, of thought around women and sex, there has not even consciously been an attempt to, you know, emancipate women out of the, the repression and the subordination of women's pleasure by urging um, women to adopt what is, you know, seen as male sexual kind of characteristics. So, you know, feeling entitled to sex and, um, 
and you know being being unafraid to just express sexual desire and to sort of take that sexual desire for granted and i think that thinking gets into sexological work and it also gets into some some moments in feminist thought in the last kind of you know since the mid century mid 20th century i would i would say um and again that that doesn't help anyone a because it you know as as we were saying earlier like it denies the reality of ambivalence and 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 you know uncertainty but also because i don't think that that stance is one that we should be inscribing in anyone and it is also not true for men that men you know men sex for men i think it it's not the complete opposite of what sex is for women at mm. all you know i think men are under tremendous pressure pressure to uh, you know, first of all, to have erections, to maintain erections, to ejaculate at the right time, to mm-hmm. to give a woman an orgasm, right? Because because that's you know, it's a again, it's this kind of giving that's and to mm. yeah, it's the, you know, it's the object, um, and and never to fail, and always to you know have conquests and be you know mm. be the man. I I don't want to aspire to that. I don't want anyone to aspire to that mm. because I think that is again, it's a kind of punitive ideal. It's about having a sort of norm that's a ceiling. And if you fall short of that, then you're a failure. And I think that sex for men is a realm of tremendous potential humiliation. And I think that men are at their most violent when they feel humiliated. Mm. So how can we create a sexual culture that allows men also to fail in inverted commas, you know, also not to always want sex, also mm-hmm. to sometimes an erection will, will dwindle. It's mm-hmm. fine. It's no big deal. It isn't the end of the universe you know yeah. because if it f- if the stakes feel so high then i think men lash out and who do mm. they tend to lash out to mm-hmm. they lash out to women mm. i mean not just to women because you know there's lots of sexual violence against men and lots mm-hmm. of gendered violence towards men who are not considered masculine enough and mm-hmm. you know not that's not even mentioned like the violence towards trans people and mm-hmm. you know that's all about norms of gender mm. um but there's a real loss potentially of pleasure for men there too. Mm. And I think that is so sad and we have to do everything we can not to just to buy into that narrative, which is that, um, you know, it's just women who suffer in this realm. I think there is deep Mm. suffering around sex for men. And, you know, the tragedy is that we don't even have a language for that. You know, at the very least we have a language for this, for, for women, you know, and thinking about these girls Mm. putting their, their stories on this, is it an Instagram account that in, um, everyone's invited? Yeah, and our website, yeah. And yeah. our website. But what are the stories of these boys? You know, somebody needs to listen to the boys who are doing this. Some, mm. And, you know, people like you are doing that incredible work. Mm. What is it like for them? Mm. Do the, how do they feel? They probably know, some of them, that they have done some things that have wounded someone else. Mm. How, what, are, what are we extending to them in terms of a culture that thinks about their their joy, their pleasure, their curiosity, Mm. not just their shame, you know, because I think, of course, sexual assault is terrible and the Mm. the harassment and the bullying that young girls endure is just horrendous. But we also have to be really careful not to completely vilify the boys and the men who are doing this because they're doing this for a reason. They're doing it because it's, it's what feels like the only option. So they're being cheated too by this system. Big time. I think that there are a couple of things that are going on. I think for for one, there are um, there are men who uh, who choose to be violent towards women. There are men who are choosing violence as as a course of action. Um, mm. And so I think there's a different answer to that question, um, which is probably also to do with masculinity and how we raise boys and uh, the culture which reifies masculinity at all costs, but doesn't allow men to do masculinity in ways that are in any way um, gentle. But, you know, within this, uh, I guess, within this kind of zero-sum game that we have of um, uh, of where you can only be up if someone is is one down, Mm-hmm. then some men are going to want to be violent towards people in order that they are one up. Yeah. But I think the other thing here, which I guess we're skirting around and, and I guess we're talking about is the, is, you know, the default sexual script, you know, the default heterosexual script is this, um, you know, certain things happen in a certain order. It mm-hmm. is about penis and vagina sex and it involves hard penises and hard penises are a source of tremendous shame for men. 
but also they're the source of many people's sexual problems. Like, you know, even in NatSal 3, uh, the uh, national, oh, I always forget what it's called, the big sex survey. National attitudes, lifestyles, yeah, Thinking. sexual attitudes. Yeah. Yeah, I know the one you mean. I yeah. can never get the acronym right either. The last big one, anyway, was that they, <laughs> they reckon that 50% of all genders had some reported having some kind of sexual problem. And if we, if we completely mm. redefine sex and say, well, sex could be anything that you might enjoy with someone else, then immediately a lot of those sexual problems kind of go away. But that heterosexual kind of script is so gendered. It's so... Um, it's something that everyone has to kind of buy into. One of the things I was thinking when I was reading the book is, um, you know, what what about the possibilities for men to reveal vulnerability and to reveal their own ambivalences and to feel that kind of intimacy that we can even get even from a very like casual sexual encounter, that kind of sexual love kind of uh, mm. that kind of happens in in moments with with people. But you know, what kind of what 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 practices does that man have to go through in order to get into that position? What kind of masculinities does that man have to do in order to be desirable in the first place within our system, which only reifies certain masculinities mm. and you know, men have to do one thing, women, women another. It's, it's, um, it's pretty complex. Um, mm. And I, the, I think that with this, that, we're not going to get there by oversimplifying it is, is the one yeah. thing that I definitely know. And I think that's the, the wonderful thing that I get from your book is that um, it doesn't benefit us to oversimplify things. Whilst I think we have to speak with two voices to quote Elsie mm. Whittington as well is that we do have to say, you know, that these are all bad and we need to work towards preventing them whilst also saying these are also really complex and we yeah. need to give people the tools to work this out for themselves um, rather than telling them how to do it. Um, mm. That thing about reproductive sex and the sexual script, that's something that really comes up in the chapter around um, arousal as well, which I found really interesting and vital. And it comes up in some of your other work as well. I think that the the history of sexology, uh, so Masters and Johnson in particular, um, there's a brilliant TV show about them, wasn't there, that we, we yeah, got the first two series. Yeah, there, apparently there are four series of that, but we're, we were only allowed to see the first two in the UK. I wonder what happens to the others. But um, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, huh. But their kind of, their model for sex is, the, is the, the model around which much of our discourse is still based around, isn't it? So um, could, you, um, could you tell us a little bit about that? With that mm, uh, sure. Give too many spoilers away. Yeah, so... Um... So Masters and Johnson in the 60s, well, in the 50s and 60s, um, were doing this research in, in the laboratory. You know, they had a laboratory where people were, were kind of rigged up to, to sensors and plethysmographs and um, That's how you cameras. That and, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got used to saying it over the years. Um, and they, what they kind of decided was that uh, sexual function follows this quite sort of linear mechanical set of stages. Mm. Um, and, you know, arousal in the right conditions will happily lead to orgasm. There, and, and, and importantly, they argued that this was similar in men and women. They were, re- it was really interesting because they weren't like, um, they weren't into feminism in many, many ways. And they were very careful to speak in this almost parodic scientific language because they were trying to make sexology and sex research, you know, respectable and to be uh, protected from accusations of obscenity and so on. Mm. Um, but they, but they actually saw male and female sexuality in really analogous terms. So, you know, where lubrication in women is the exact counterpart of erection in men and, and so on. And they mapped sexual dysfunctions along these very clear axes of um, arousal and orgasm. And their work was incorporated into the DSM, so the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, Mm -hmm. uh, in 1980 in its very influential third edition. And and it was sort of expanded in the sense that um, desire was added to the kind of roster. So you have desire, you know, you just begin with desire, just comes out of nowhere. You then get aroused, um, then you reach orgasm, and then you plateau. And... uh, Oh, sorry, the other way around, plateau and orgasm. And um, 
they've been so influential. And what is really fascinating is that in the last 20 years, there have been a lot of sort of feminist sex researchers and psychologists who have started to really take apart that model and to criticize the DSM because the mm. categories that the DSM developed did enable an over pathologization of women. So as you were saying, you know, if, if, um, if something goes wrong in any of those, uh, any of those points in that linear progression, you have a sexual dysfunction. Mm. And the way that um, that sort of low and low and normal desire were defined was such that if you didn't have like spontaneous desire and didn't experience a lot of kind of fantasizing about sex, you you had low desire and you had a sexual dysfunction. Mm. And so a lot of um, you know researchers in the last twenty years really tried to undo that and say, hang on, this this over pathologizes women because actually empirically it seems that women don't experience sex in this linear way. And so mm. a psychologist called Rosemary Basson articulated a view of sexual desire that is much more circular and responsive. So where you, um, you have, you know, you might not experience this kind of really urgent, spontaneous sexual desire, but um, you may, you know, you may become more interested in it if the conditions mm. are right. Mm -hmm. um, it's such complex, controversial research, I think, because mm. it's onto something really important, which is that desire doesn't come out of nowhere. I think for men or women, in mm. fact, it's just that, you know, the, the society and the culture we live in uh, invite male sexual desire much more than they invite female sexual mm. desire, and they reward it very, very differently. Mm. Um, but also that, you know, that sexuality is is in relation to another person and it, and it responds to the conditions, which can be really awful for a lot mm. of people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the conditions make a huge difference as to whether you can even access the idea of sexual desire or access any kind of, uh, you know, pleasurable relationship to your own arousal. Mm. So your own awareness, even of your own arousal. Mm. So it's really, really interesting research, but in the kind of take up of it, it has sometimes of course been harnessed to yet again, this really, binary notion of you know men being this kind of mm. lustful animal driven mm. sex and women sort of uh having a more almost a more cognitive approach to sex so mm. oh you know i'm i i have interests in this relationship going well i'm i want intimacy i want closeness sex will do that for me i'll i'll come you know i'll be open to sex and then maybe i'll come around to it and oh yeah actually maybe maybe i will get into it and hooray great i did start to feel into it mm. but again it's like that's a very uh you know long-standing idea of men as sort of animals and of mm. women as kind of women sometimes bring sexuality into their personhood in order to fulfill other aims that they might have. Mm. My take on that is that, you know, I think that sexual desire and sexual arousal always emerge in context. Always. Of course mm. they do. We're not just bodies. You know, of course we are, we are animals and we have certain drives and needs, mm. but our sexuality is always lived in a culture, in a context mm. where we feel safe or not safe, mm -hmm. where we are aware or not aware that, you know, our desire might be used against us in a court of law, where, you know, maybe our partner is abusive or controls our finances. So we have no choice as to whether to have sex or not, because mm -hmm. we might be out on the streets, mm -hmm. you know, nothing is lived without a context. And I think that is true for men too, but we have kind of naturalized the context for male sexuality and the context for female sexuality to the extent that we we're resistant to thinking about how all desire is something that emerges. Yeah. And then of course that complete, that does nothing to trouble um, the, the gender, the gender stories and the language we have uh, around men, men and women when it comes to heterosexual sex, that um, men be horny and women and want it all the time. And women act as gatekeepers around consent exactly. and, and, it all, and it all fits in together, which is, um, extremely unhelpful mm. um the other thing i was going to say there wow the, the um yeah the so this i think this is another example of the of taking of taking something where there might have been some validity uh if it was put into context mm -hmm. and oversimplifying it and it becoming like a key message held by people who might profit from that you know who might who might get capital from that. So, um, 
that, you know, really, if we don't see sex as being anything other than biopsychosocial, I don't think we're really understanding it. Mm. And so, and because sex is that complicated mix, as you were talking about, that kind of the, the social, the psychological, the bio, all feeding off each other. I think it's hard for one person from one particular profession to say, uh, unless you're Gab or Mate, who's very good at this, but for, in terms of sexology, it has to be kind of like owned by one of those three different sections, it feels to mm-hmm. me. And that's the kind of thing that I seem to get from and from a lot of research, that it's either owned by the biologists or owned by the psychologists or owned by the sociologists. And actually, it's this, it's much more dense, complex kind of mix of all of those. And actually, that's, I think if we to understand that, we'd have, it would be, if we were to accept that, we'd all have a much easier time of figuring out, right, well, I get why I wanted to do it in in that instance, but not in this instance. Mm. One really simple activity that we have in, that Meg John and I have in our book, I think it was, this is Meg John's idea, was to com- is to compare two occasions where you did exactly the same thing. And I think this could be for sex, but you could do it for anything, like say eating a chocolate bar. Let's compare two occasions where I eat a chocolate bar on one occasion, that's, that chocolate bar was felt great. It was exactly what I wanted to eat. I had a wonderful, joyful experience. Another time, eating the exact same chocolate bar in a different context, mm. did nothing for me. What are the things that are different? And the things that are different are, okay, well, was I hungry? How's I feeling? Was I having a bad day? Why was I eating this? Thinking about the messages that I receive around how, what I should or shouldn't be eating at what particular kind of day, and whether it's okay for a forty-five-year-old man to eat a curly whirly. You know, it's that these are all things that are implied. Any, yeah, of course it is. But uh, but it's also not. It really isn't. Uh, <laughs> Twix, Snickers, Kit Kat, Twix. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, but. That kind of context is always at play, in particular when it comes to sex. And I think that mm. is, you know, that's a simple activity to reveal a complex thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's so interesting thinking about that um, in terms of things like arousal, right? Because we know, we know that people are capable of experiencing physiological arousal and orgasm during sexual assault. Mm. So you know, some, some of the sex research is really fixated on sexual arousal and trying to kind of map the conditions in which women experience arousal and what they what they respond to in terms of pornography and, and whether there's a mismatch between their physiological arousal and their subjective arousal, you know, whether they experience subjective enjoyment in watching a particular type of pornography that their body seems to respond to. Mm. And in a sense, you know, when I read some of this research, I think... Well, really, we're mistaking physiological arousal for sexual arousal. It's not just that we're mistaking physiological arousal for a subjective sense of enjoyment and pleasure. Mm. It's that physiological arousal is not necessarily sexual enjoyment. You know, it's, I mean, it might be, but we just, we do not know from the outside. We cannot know from the outside. And it's so, it's so vital to, you know, I mean, I'm not saying like no sexologist should study the the body and the physiological body, you know, I mean, I don't, maybe I do think that, I don't know, but you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that they, that research shouldn't be done, but everything happens in a context. And the really complex thing about sex is um, that you can have sex that works, you can have orgasm and you can feel devastated afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um you know, in in not in, in, in consensual sex, but also your body can do certain things when you are being physically assaulted and you don't want it, which just shows to what we find fulfilling and what our bodies do is infinitely complex. And you know, there there are no sort of easy kind of mappings, but which is you know, it makes this a really, really murky terrain, but it's mm. so important that we that we think about the kind of whole context of sex and that we take really seriously what um, people say and feel mm. about their sexual lives. Mm. I mean, you know, it's, it's additionally complex because one of the arguments I make in the book is that, you know, the attempt to kind of read off a woman's sexual desire from what her body does is really dangerous for the reasons I just mentioned. Mm. But it's also not the case that you can just straightforwardly ask someone, what do you want? And you will get the answer. You won't. You won't necessarily because somebody might not know or they might feel under pressure in a way that you don't 
see or understand. And they may not have access to their sexual desire because of the culture that they live in, because Mm. of how they grew up, because of all sorts of things. Mm. So it's like you have to pay this incredibly fine-grained attention to an individual person and the relationship between what they feel and say and this wider culture that we live in that is frankly horrendous when it comes to sexual pleasure. Really bad. And I I think it also, the wider culture just gaslights what women and men and all genders around um, sex too, with all of the things that you're kind of explaining so well in the book. So much of, I would say, I hate using the term the discourse, but I hope everyone kind of knows what it means. Like, but so much of like the discourse around sex, um, I find so unhelpful because it does exactly that. It, 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 it confuses more than clarifies and it, it kind of tells us what it is that our bodies should be feeling or doing or it tries mm. to give us simplistic solutions for for how we should understand sex and it takes us away from tuning into our own experience mm. um, and the um, and also just tuning into how our body works and the kinds of things that we're trying to make our bodies do um, in order to to have this kind of mind-blowing sex and you know the one of the things that um alan mckee often says about pornography like one of the key criticisms around pornography is that they show great sex but they don't show how to have really great sex Mm. and i think this is still something that we're not doing and just to kind of circle back to our conversation about pleasure is that um that we can that we can have a very that our feelings of pleasure can be can be memories um, or they can be what we're currently experiencing or this a general sense of what might have felt joyful but it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is we might remember like keywords or, or or things that or feelings in our body that might come up but it's going to be different every time mm-hmm. for different people every time too but I think the thing that we can work on is to work around the conditions wherein we might begin to feel pleasure with someone else and that's the key and for me that's the the, where I think the framing of consent comes in and I guess Mm. the I guess like I do in my book I suppose with if if we're framing consent around agency freedom and choices then we can start to build in that capacity but at the minute just so much of um, what we are taught, so much of the common sense idea um, uh, that we, the ideas that we have around sex and relationships takes us away from that, does the opposite mm. of giving us that capacity. Um, mm. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I think that, you know, part, part of what I'm arguing in the book is that, um, you know, ev- every sexual experience is unrepeatable. I mean, it's mm. just, like every sexual moment is different. And, you know, you may do something with one person and not want to do it with another or, you know, or with the same person. Like it's, it's not, it's so much of the moment and it's so kind of um, determined by the context and by your state of mind in that particular moment and all these things Mm. that it's really hard even to generalize about what you like yourself, I think. But that shouldn't be taken as a kind of grounds for what I think sometimes happens in the discourse around consent, which is like, sex is really complicated. Therefore, you know, it's just, you just have to go with the flow and sometimes it's bad and sometimes it's good. And, you know, bad sex is an inevitable part of growing up. And, you know, this kind of slightly dismissive narrative about, um, about consent, you know, about Mm. consent culture. And I really, you know, I really disagree with that narrative because I think that the complexity of sex and the kind of unrepeatability of it and the fact that sometimes we don't know what we want isn't a grounds for being resigned to sex being bad. Mm -hmm. It's a grounds for thinking, okay, exactly as you say, like what are the conditions that we can create such that that uncertainty and that unfoldingness isn't inevitably a source of danger to us? Mm -hmm. You know, how can we think about that kind of unrepeatability and and unknowingness as what is um, firstly potentially exciting and wonderful about sex, Mm -hmm. but also an area where we have to really think about allowing the other person their changing desires, Mm -hmm. their, their, you know, confused states around sex, you know, as sometimes happens. How can we combine that acknowledgement of the complexity of it with a commitment to doing 
everything we can to enable the other person's freedom and autonomy and mm. pleasure. And I think that's, you know, that's what's kind of really depressing about some of the consent debates, you know, is that like either you're just really a champion of consent and and this kind of, you know, legal language and, you know, affirmative consent guidelines and, you know, ever increasing kind of uh, legalistic apparatus in institutions, which I have mixed feelings about. So, mm. you know, either you're, either you're just completely pro or you're taking the view, which is like, oh, sex is complicated and mm-hmm. bad, some, some bad experiences are inevitable. I don't think bad sex should be inevitable. No. I don't think it has to be inevitable. I think we really have to raise the bar and think about how we can make sure that the riskiness and you know, excitable weirdness of sex mm. is not a terrain mm. where we are constantly made vulnerable to sexual violence or bullying. That, you know, I want to really interrupt that sort of equation. I think there's, if there's one kind of like biological process, I think we could all pay attention to a bit more. It is the, uh, the autonomous nervous system. And um, that if we just think that, if, uh, so if uh, our autonomous, dear listener, if you don't know, the autonomous nervous system is divided into the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. If our sympathetic nervous system is activated, it means we are in react mode. We are just like uh, alert, alert, alert. There is a danger. There is a risk. There is potential harm. In order to really feel sexual arousal, I think, uh, from some of the reading I've done around this and just just my thoughts about it, I suppose, are that we need the parasympathetic nervous system to be in in mode. Like we need to be, the reason that we um, feel that our genitals get engorged during the night is that our body is recharging our genitals because we are deeply relaxed. And how do we get deeply relaxed? And we get deeply relaxed by knowing what's about to happen, by having some sense of trust in the person that we're with, by knowing that the other person is going to be as interested in it, potentially being pleasurable as as us and that we try to do that to them with them too so there is that kind of interpersonal stuff that we've been talking about but there is this kind of broader material thing as well and this is certainly true for young people anyone who doesn't who um who lives with their parents uh, which is a lot of young people is where do they do this like you mm. know the, the the space allowed to, to people um you know rents are extremely high uh uh, jobs are few for young people the kind of young people that, that a lot of people are wringing their hands around mm. often just don't have the material circumstances where they can put aside two or three hours and try to mm. explore each other's bodies and have this wonderful as you say like conversation uh, of intimacy no matter how like casual or recreational the sex might be that just that is just denied to a lot of people so I think just materially mm. that's it's it's material for lots of people it's tricky i think you know society is kind of set up in many ways for people to have bad sex and to kind of Mm. put up with it in order to find someone to live with i think that's the kind of the grim like Mm, truth for a lot of people really yeah Um, but just finally just also wanted to reflect on the the politics of this as well because um something i try to do with this podcast and i think not enough people really do is to try to link up the political with with this with the sex i'm not sure that i have a very good handle on it yet or a good vocabulary but uh, i feel like you do <laughs> so not to put you on the spot but you know, <laughs> sex should be like and you say in the book a bit i underlined and went yes uh, in the book was that bad sex should be political like this should be something that we we care way more about not just in terms of taking the piss out of Keir Starmer, which is basically what every podcast does now, um, <laughs> which I'm here for, but, you know, not every podcast has to do that. Um, but in what, in what ways might it be political? What, what, what kind of, uh, in what ways might we talk about sex politically and have it on the agenda politically and take it seriously as a, as a potential um, political topic? I think bad sex and good sex are, they are political issues and, you know, sexual assault as well. Yeah. They're political issues because um, they're partly about access to resources, <laughs> you know, concrete resources. Like you were saying, it's about mm. safety of housing. It's about precarious work. It's about whether landlords are exploiting tenants um, in order to, you know, for tenants to be able to stay on if they can't afford their 
payments as in the pandemic, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's about, uh, you know, domestic violence. It's about racialized violence. All these things are about who, um, you know, how resources are distributed in society, but it's also about who is seen as entitled to certain forms of relaxation, Mm -hmm. as you were saying, Mm -hmm. Um, the conditions in which you can safely explore your sexuality that are private, that are safe. Mm. Um, And it's about who is seen as having the right to pleasure, Mm. Um, you know, and who, whose pleasure is important in a situation, who, who's, desire trumps the other person's desire. Those are all things to do with inequality and relationships of power. Mm. Not to mention what happens when things go wrong, you know, so who whose stories are believed, who has the, the right kinds of cultural and economic capital mm. in order to be protected in a court of law, mm. who has access to lawyers, who can pay, is there legal aid? I mean, you know, the list, the list is endless. Yeah. Um, so I so I really think that we can think about it as a question of um of sort of distribution of resources, including things like, you know, access to sex education, mm-hmm. sexual literacy, you know, sexual health services, information. Mm-hmm. Do people know how their bodies work? Do they have um, a confidential source of sexual advice? Do mm-hmm. they, can they get access to condoms? Yeah. I mean, all these things, they're really so like, profound. I really like what you say there about, um, you know, basically that agency is disproportionately shared out it's uh we don't don't all have equal amounts of agency yet yeah a lot of the things in your in a lot of the the key messages as we call them that you kind of that you interrogate in your book presume that we're all on a level playing field don't they yeah they presume that all women have to do is to be confident to say no i want this or they all assume that arousal means the same thing to the same person that we're all and, and also that we should be that our desires are kind of uh uh manufactured in a particular way but yeah we all have different agencies so if Mm -hmm. i think that navigating those different agencies is is so important and something again which isn't kind of spoken about that if you're someone who has a history of sexual trauma or sexual shame or um you uh have less money less wealth have experienced racism other forms of oppression mm. then there's going to be a lot more at stake for you than somebody who hasn't and that that just has to be the 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 thread that runs through all all of mm. this and yeah that is uh, that is super political that's um incredibly political yeah and we see it we see it all the time i mean you know in terms of things like me too and you know the media you know, the, the women around whom the kind of media attention sometimes lands tend to be white women. And we've seen this recently when women of color are, you know, assaulted and found dead all the time. And there isn't the same, the kind of, you know, these these weird moments when the media attaches onto something that, that also, you know, all these stories are horrendous. Everybody deserves protection. Mm. But it's it's always very telling where the attention lands and how and, and whose face is reproduced in newspapers. And it does tend to be blonde white women. Mm. And you know, it all of that is it again, it's about distribution of resources. It's about whose pain matters, you know, whose suffering are we more indifferent to and less indifferent to. And it's and I have such mixed feelings about these kind of media flare-ups because while on the one hand, I don't know, I mean, you know, in 2017, 2018, all the stuff around Me Too, in one sense it was, you know, it, it was really important and it and it did do something. I don't know exactly what it did actually ultimately. Mm. But, um, you know, similarly with what's been happening recently with Sarah Everard and now what's happening with the this testimony of girls from schools, it's mm. like on the one hand there's part of me that, you know, I feel like, okay, it's good these stories are being heard, but we've heard them all before. Mm. 
we always hear them. Mm. We hear them, but what happens? You know, how are we actually listening? Who is listening? Mm. And of course, what are the what are the resources that are then distributed in the wake of these moments of media interest? You know, I mean, the response to the Sarah Everard killing was so telling. Mm. This kind of intensification of a really blunt instrument of police force that mm. you know was then used against women doing protest mm. against violence. Um, you know, all these ideas of plainclothes policemen, like marauding around nightclubs. Great. I feel so much safer knowing there's yet more men controlling women's sexuality and women's bodies, you know? So it's, I I always feel really troubled by, by this kind of intensification of interest in the media about these things, Mm -hmm. because it's so wearily familiar. We know the rates of sexual violence. We know how pervasive sexual harassment is. I didn't need to hear the statistics about, um, you know, the proportion of young girls who encounter this stuff. We all know this stuff. Why is nothing changing? And the, I guess, just just finally, I suppose that as the, um, there is the risk that when the media takes on those, uh, again, those simplistic messages, that what happens is that it just retells the narrative of victimization and women and what it is to be a, to be a woman uh, without ever, committing to something which is transformative and Mm -hmm. hopefully we are seeing something which is more transformative you know the sisters uncut uh the uh protests and the solidarity around that i think is really good that um that uh is that is very powerful but yeah it's difficult because we we are going to you know keep hearing these stories again and again until things change but um yeah the other political thing here is that things aren't going to change you know sex education isn't changing radically transformatively anytime soon mm. uh you know i haven't had a contract longer than a year and i've been doing this for 21 years mm. you know with yeah a lot of charities have either been drastically downsized or don't exist anymore in the yeah. sector. so um yeah and the impact of austerity on all these things on on the resources that young people have to talk to people who can help them, who can support them. I mean, it is, it is just horrendous. Mm. I mean, really things were always bad, but the Tories have certainly not made anything better for women. Big time. Well, uh, I'm delighted to say that tomorrow's sex will be good again is amazing. And I think you should all read it. Let's uh, it's by Verso books, isn't it? This is the bit we do now, isn't it? Verso books. Available from their website. It's very pretty. It's the it's possibly yeah, one of the prettiest nice. books I own. Um, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I really they yeah. did a great job with the design. They really did. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Thanks so um, much. It was great to talk with you. Yeah, and uh, dear listener, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Culture Sex Relationships, and we're on Twitter at Culture Sex Ral. That's right, I think, yeah. Um, And yeah, also, if you have any questions for an upcoming advice episode where I give advice, if you have any questions about relationships or sex or anything related, uh, you can email me, culturesexrelationships at gmail.com, and I'll answer your questions in a future show. Until next time, bye.